All right, well, we are in Revelation 4 today. Let me get my notes up. Still trying to figure out all this trinkety stuff. Cool. All right, Revelation 4. Uh, we've spent the last couple weeks, seven weeks, I guess, in seven churches. We spent the last seven weeks looking at those seven churches of what? Jesus telling John to write to these seven churches in that present day. But in order to understand what chapter 4 and actually the rest of the, the rest of Revelation is talking about, there's one verse in Revelation 119 I want to read. Revelation 119, the voice of Jesus tells John, he says, Write therefore the things which you have seen, which are the past, that's chapter 1. Those that are, that's the present, that's chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this, that's 4 and through the end of the chapter, that's the future. And as we get and as we look at the throne in heaven, there's so much stuff here. And I can just imagine it, and you'll see it when we get into four. I can just imagine John, the door being opened to John, and John seeing all these things, and him just thinking, there's no way I can even know how to describe these things, let alone make a good record of these things. And just like a good reporter, he was probably furiously scribbling in his notepad, trying to think of everything and make mental pictures of everything, but there was just so much there that he just, it's, it's easy to imagine he didn't even get everything. Maybe he just wrote the things that were most important to him that God actually wanted us to know. So the throne in heaven. There's not a lot of good pictures online. This is one I found, and I'll show another one later. I don't like this one so much because it says in Revelation 4 that the elders' robes are white, and those are obviously not white. But the rest is there. The door is there. The trump is there. That's the voice of Jesus. There's an emerald rainbow around the throne. There's beasts. There are those elders. There's all those things. And there's again, there's so much stuff here around the throne that I think the question will be, well, what does it all mean? So I would like to read all of Revelation 4. Just to start off, read all Revelation 4, just so you can see the majesty and might that God is showing his people and showing John. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me as I read, then I would greatly appreciate that. The words won't be on here, but you're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles or phones or whatever. So Revelation 4. After this, I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in, I once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power.
power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. It is extremely simple for us, and it is probably a question all of us ask as we look at Revelation, not just in 4, but the rest of Revelation, to ask ourselves the question, what does all this stuff mean? Like, what do the crowns and the lampstands and the sea and the jewels and the beast, what does all this mean? We'll ask, I mean, if you, for most people, I think, if you were to hear that there was a study on Revelation, 1 through 3, that's good, and whatever, like churches and all that stuff, but like, you kind of rub your hands together and say, man, I'm excited. Like, I don't know what all this stuff means, but I'm, I'm excited for someone to tell me what this stuff means. And it's a good question. What does all this stuff mean? But the more I thought about it, I thought about it a lot this week, I started to ask a different question. It wasn't so much what does all this stuff mean, but what do all these things point towards? Because John, he's writing all this stuff, and Jesus is showing him all this stuff, and he's, he's marking down and trying to remember all these things. But ultimately, the point of the throne room and the things in this throne room, they're not just for themselves. They're not, they're not just like individual pieces of this throne room. They're all focused on one thing, they're all, they're all pointing towards one thing, and John understands that, and he realizes that the throne and the power of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and their dominion is the thing that all of this stuff points to. This stuff's important, and we'll get to it, and it all has meaning, but ultimately God and his throne and his dominion and his power is the main thing of John 4. So this door to start, and this voice, the voice is Jesus, and he says, come up here, and we'll look at, or we'll look at Exodus 19 in a second. But this door, it signifies God's revelation. It's the idea that, it, and it's a crazy thing to think about. Again, we've already talked Revelation 1.19. Revelation 1 was past. Revelation 2 and 3 is future. Revelation 4 and following is, Revelation 2 and 3 is present. Revelation 4 and following is future. And the thing is, like, God, in his infinite wisdom, has allowed us in our finite Stupidity. I hope I can say that. He's allowed us to understand what's happening in Revelation 4 and following. We know the end. God has given us the end. And even though this stuff is future, God has said, you know what? Like, I'm going to let you on. on so- I'm going to let you in on something. And so that whatever happens, like, there will be death. There will be heartache. There will be despair. There will be loss. There will be all kinds of upheaval in your life. But God ultimately says, I will win. All the things of the enemy, all the things of Satan, all the powers and dominions of darkness that come against us, as Paul talks about in his letters, all those things will happen to us. But God says, the end is coming, and the end is that we win. Jesus and his people win. And so when we're going through this stuff, especially in the beginning, when the door and the voice, the revelation of God, God, Jesus is saying, here it is. Here's what you need to know, and the end is we win. It is incredible to be allowed to be a part of God's revelation, understand what he's doing in the world, to know that times will suck, but God will win. So, Exodus 19, like I said, there's very much a come up here, both in Exodus or Revelation 4 and Exodus 19. I'll read, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. This is Moses at the base of Mount Sinai, right before the Ten Commandments. So there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in the fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. 
And Moses went up. And it's not just a regular encounter that God was calling Moses up to. It was one, as we already read, of trumpets, sounds, and lightning and thunder. And he came to give him the word of God, the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. He wasn't just, it wasn't just a regular meeting. It was God meeting man and coming to where he was and saying, let's do this together. And this is also in Revelation 4. Jesus calling John up and saying, listen, man takes part in this. It's a beautiful thing to go from Revelation 2 and 3 where those churches are in the present. Those are places. Mike showed them on a map every week. Those those are actual places, actual churches, and actual cities with actual people. And in Revelation 4, these are things that are happening in the future, but there's no division between them. There's no, like, this is the church, and these are the, this is what's happening in the world, and this, they, you kind of do your own thing, and this is God, and this is heaven, we're going to kind of do our own thing. There is such an intermixing and intermingling of what the churches are doing, what's happening on earth in the present, both in Revelation 2 and 3 and present now, and what's happening and what God is doing in the future. Like, they're, they're, they're inextricably linked to each other. And so as we do things in the church, we know that there are things that God sees, God, that God sees all those things in heaven and is encouraged by our faith or distraught by our lack of faith. So as all the stuff me and Jesus speaks, I got on Sinai. The throne in heaven is an interesting thing because we know that there's, well, we can see, spoiler alert, the one on the throne is God. God's the one on the throne. And you would think that there is all kinds of things that John would want to say about God because, I mean, the whole Bible speaks of God. The whole Bible speaks of God's plan and his provision, and his redemption of the world. But John barely barely says anything about it. He pretty much says there's one who sits on the throne. And it really is kind of frustrating if we were to say, man, just tell us something about God, Jake. Sorry, Jake. John, just tell us something about God, John. Tell us something we don't know. And John's like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to tell you about God, but as you look at these things, of all these things that are around the throne, all these things point to who God is. They talk about God's character. They point back to even Exodus 19 and other places in the New and Old Testament and say, all these things God has done all along the way point to God's provision, point to God's glory, point to God's beauty and his majesty. We can't see God. That's throughout Scripture. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God. Exodus 33.20, God says, you may not see my face for no one has seen God and live. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the King of kings and Lord of lords alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him, nor can anyone see him. But John can be in his presence and in his glory and his power and in his person. He can see not who God is, but he can see everything. That, he can't see who God is, but he can see everything that God is. That might be not the best well said, but I think you're smart people. You understand that. So let's talk about those stones. I don't know much stones. My original notes, I actually put... Talk about stones for 15 seconds because I have zero idea of stones. My one experience, and I'll tell this, my one experience with stones is I went to Africa when I was 20, Tanzania, Africa, 20 years old. <laughs> and my mom and my sister, they gave me some money. They're like, hey, there's a stone called Tanzanite stone. And maybe you know what Tanzanite stone is. It's a really deep blue, really pretty stone. And they said, you know what? Like, it's a lot cheaper there. Why don't you just buy some Tanzanite stone? And I said, that's fine. So I took their money and I bought my mother, a Tanzanite ring, and my sister, a Tanzanite ring, and I said, you know what, like, with this extra money I have, I'm just going to buy my future wife a Tanzanite ring. I hadn't met my wife yet, I didn't meet her for another two years, that's right, uh, thank you, whoever said that, that's right, I, if we want to get that going, that'd be great, but like, in my, I bought it because I, I wanted to give it to my future wife, because it was such a beautiful, pretty 
gorgeous, really ring. Tanzanite's a gorgeous stone. And I said, I, I, like I said, I wanted to give to my future wife as a symbol of my love for her. The deep blue that a Tanzanite is, that's the kind of idea that these deep, the, the deep colors that these stones have. Um, Jasper actually shows up again in Revelation 21. I'll read this real quick. An angel, John says, carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiant like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, again, I don't know much about gems, and I always thought jasper was like a green thing, and when I Googled, jasper came up as green. But somehow, and maybe it's just translations or something like that, in Revelation, jasper, and it might not be, it might just be another stone, whatever, but jasper is clear as crystal, and it shows up. And this is, this is the holy city of Jerusalem. This is the new heavens and the new earth, Jerusalem, coming down. This is like where people will end up at the end of days. And there's jasper clear as crystal there. But in Revelation 4, with all these stones, with the jasper and the carnelian and the, rain, and the emerald rainbow and all these things showing up, it just, just, just picture, if you can, the beauty of what those things look like. The, the clear as crystal jasper, the carnelian or the ruby, the NID called it, it's blood red. Emerald rainbow is just startling, startling stark green rainbow around and there's lightning flashes too and they're vibrant and they're glorious and they're they're these white and yellow and think about the best storm you've ever seen and all the brightest colors you've ever seen and this is what the throne room of god looks like it's it's beyond anything we could ever imagine in our lives if you're on a mountain and there's a gorgeous thunderstorm hopefully it's not right over you but it's a couple miles or hopefully 20 miles away that's an awe-inspiring worshipful experience for a lot of us and here, John is experiencing that times infinity, that times a thousand, because God's glory is there. So there's power and there's beauty. Um, one of my favorite passages, and I'll read from some of it. One of my favorite passages, and I would actually say probably some of my favorite chapters in the Bible are in Job 30, 38 and following. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of Job. Job is, in the very beginning, Job 1, he is presented as an incredibly upright guy. He is someone that is so close to God. He has such communion with God that Satan actually comes to God and says, you know what, let me test this guy. Let me see if this guy's really with you. And God says, I trust him. I trust Job. He's so upright. He's so upstanding. He's so close to me that I'll let you test him. That I'll let you tempt him. And there's some really deep theological implications there. And I'll let you, you can ask Mike those questions when he gets back. But ultimately, like God says, yeah, you can test Job. And so Satan goes to Job and he tests him. And he takes away his servants. And he takes away his, his donkeys and his camels. And he actually takes away his children too. And Job continues to worship God. And Satan gets upset. He comes back to God. He's like, well, I took away all those things. Let me take away his health too. And God said, okay, do it. And so Job is given boils and made incredibly ill and sick by Satan, so much so that his wife comes to him and says, just curse God and die. Like, God has been such, God has been so unright to you, God has been so wrong to you, that just curse him and die. And Job's like, I won't. And for 36 chapters or so, Job is met by a few friends, and it's really some of the worst theology. Like, there's not, a whole, there's not bad theology in the Bible. I've asked seminary professors this before. Why, is, why are these chapters in the Bible? Because there's really bad theology in most of Job. Because Job and his friends sit down, and they're blaming God for things. They're saying God is unjust. They're saying Job did this, and these things are happening because of the sin. And it's 36 chapters of really, really bad ideas about God and sin and all these things. And in Revelation 38, 
God has heard all these things. He hasn't inserted himself into the conversations, in, into the conversation. But in Job 38, he pretty much says, in essence, Job, sit down and shut up. And let me tell you how things really are. In 38, verse 2, he says, God, God says this to Job. He says, who is this that darkens, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And for the next couple chapters, God just hammers on Job. And he says, I've, done, I've created these animals. I've created these corners of the earth. One of the things he says is, God, God talks about there are storehouses of snow. And like, just imagine that in your mind, that there's a, an infi- infinite storehouse of snow somewhere up in heaven. And just when it snows around here, Job takes like this little ice, or not Job, God takes a little ice scoop and just kind of flutters it out there. And like in Wyoming and Nebraska and like wherever else around the world it snows, like it's coming from God's infinite storehouse of snow. But that's what God says in Job 38 and following. There's a storehouse of snow. And there's lightning and thunder too. 38 and 25, 38, 25 says, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and away from the thunderbolt? Who's, who's, who's made that channel the rain falls down? Who's made that place? Who's created that way the thunderbolt comes down? In 35 he says, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? These lightnings are talking back to God and saying, hey, we're doing what you said. Here we are. And we're doing, we, we went exactly where he told us to do. And, and Job is just hammered by God. And so at the end of these chapters where God, said, where God finally relents, Job says, you know what? And again, in essence, this is a paraphrase. You know what? Like I was complaining. These things happened to me. But you're God. You are who you are. You've done what you said you would do. You're so much greater and more powerful and more majestic than I. I trust you. And I think in Revelation 4, there's some of this happening. Remember again what we know about John. John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And I don't, I, I don't recall or know anything about what his companions would be there if he, was, if he had any friends there, anybody that he knew there. But he was exiled. He was sent away to this island of Patmos away from friends and family, away from churches that he had helped plant and that had blessed him and he'd been able to bless. He was all alone. He had been serving the Lord for decades, for decades of his life. And every now and again, every few years, a report would leak in of one of his friends. And his friends, the the other disciples, had been sent to the ends of the known world. They'd been sent all over the place, from, from, from the western part of Europe to India and China. They'd been sent all over the world. And every few years, a report would leak in of, one of those friends of his, one of those disciples of Christ, being killed for their faith. They'd be torn apart by horses. They'd have their skin ripped off of them. They'd be boiled alive or crucified upside down. And John, exiled by himself, would hear these things, had served Christ for many years. And I can imagine him being like Job and saying, you know what? Like, God, what are you doing? Like, these are good men. These are men who have served you. These are men who have been with you. They, they literally walked with Jesus. And now you're letting them be skinned alive? You're letting them have a horse tied to each limb and be ripped apart? Like, God, why would you do that? And then in Revelation 4, Jesus calls John up to the throne room, shows him all these majestic and powerful things. And you can kind of imagine John sitting there thinking, just like Job, I get it. And maybe he doesn't get the suffering. Maybe his questions aren't completely answered. But there's something in him that realizes those questions he asked, those doubts he had, mean very little compared to what God actually is and who God actually is. 
God is so much more powerful and great than Job or John or even us can ask or imagine. And so when we see the presence of God, when John sees the presence of God, there's this idea that he is so big that everything else just kind of dissolves. These 24 thrones and elders are interesting. There are no less than 13 different ideas of who these guys are. Uh, one of the views goes back to 1 Chronicles 24. It's a really kind of boring story. But ultimately, Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, was a, was a high priest. He had, he had descendants, and 300 years after he died, David, the King David, he came up and he took Aaron's descendants and he divided them into 24 different people, and these 24 would look over the temple. That's what some people say, that those 24 people that are descendants of Aaron in 1 Chronicles 24 are these 24 thrones and elders. There's another one, and this is, again, going forward to Revelation 21, and whenever Mike gets to this in 2023 or whatever like that, like we'll, we'll read it then. But in Revelation 21, 12 through 14, the, uh, John writes this. He says, The holy city of Jerusalem had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of, of the Lamb. So some people think in Revelation 4, when it's talking about the 24 elders, you're talking about representatives or even the people of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, there's 13 different ones. Those are two of them. I wrote this quote down somewhere, but I don't remember where. The guy, whoever wrote it, said, In the Bible, the number 12 appears to be the number of divine government. 12 months in the lunar year... 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12 gates in the New Jerusalem, 12 angels at each gate, 12 foundations, 12,000 sealed from each tribe, 12,000 stadia, the length of the New Jerusalem, etc. Multiples of 12, such as 24, probably have a spiritual significance, or a similar significance, I'm sorry. So whoever those 24 elders are, it might be these guys, but 12 is an important number, and this guy says it probably has a similar significance. But my favorite word in there, and, and I... I, I've only been here a short time, and may, you probably don't know me very well yet. My favorite word in there is the word probably. Well, I don't know. I mean, this guy, who, whoever this guy is, and I go, again, I don't remember his name. I could have gone back and looked at it, maybe I will. But ultimately, like, this guy has probably been studying Revelation for decades. He's, he's written books on the subject. He's probably spoken spoke lectures on the subject. So there's every possibility he's taught people of Re, on Revelation before. And after, like, all of the scholarly influence he's had and all the things he's written and the thousands and millions of words that he has spoke and spilled on the page about Revelation, he says, probably. I mean, they, they probably have a similar significance. I don't know. Like, that's, not, that's just not a scholarly word. Scholars, scholars use the words like most assuredly or almost definitely or without a doubt. And he's like, I don't know, probably. But that's Revelation. Like, if God were to give us a long spreadsheet of all the bullet points of Revelation, it would, we still wouldn't understand it. Because God is so much bigger than we are, and we are so much smaller than He is, that there's just no way for us to comprehend what God is doing. There's no way for, the, for us to comprehend what God has done. There's no way for us to comprehend how we fit in that. And He could give us anything, He could give us all the definitions and all the details we need to know, and it would be like me trying to read a Stephen Hawking or an Albert Einstein or some of the most brilliant mathematician, but I only use those as examples because I can barely do math. Two plus. My son's in second grade, and by third grade I'm not going to be able to help him do his math anymore. And if I were to read those incredible mathematicians, that and then again multiply that by whatever 
huge number you want to put on it. That's what Revelation 4 and the rest of Scripture is to us. God gives us, even in Revelation, he gives us his word, his plan, his deeds. And we're just like, I don't know. Probably. I just don't know. Other people think it might be angels, but who really knows? Dress in white with gold crowns is, is interesting because it's not just who's with Jesus, but it also talks about who is not with Jesus. White going back to Sardis, and maybe you remember Sardis from three weeks ago because it was probably the best sermon you've ever heard preached. Um, thank you. Um, but in, in Sardis, Jesus tells John, he's like, hey, Sardis is a terrible place, but there are still a few who walk with Jesus, and they are clothed in white. They've not soiled their garments. They, they still walk in white. So there's a purity. There's a sense of they fought through temptation and trials, and they remain pure. They remained with God. So that's, pro- that's most likely what dressed in white means. And the gold crowns is not too much different than a gold medal we get today. These are people that have fought, they've clawed, they've worked, they've persevered. And this is not like us. This is not the idea of, the, of Christians fighting with each other and say, hey, I'm going to get closer to God than you are in fighting with each other. But this is very much the idea of fighting against the spiritual powers of Satan and the principalities of the world that he influences that try to take the world, and, and not even try to take the world, but takes the world away from Christ and, and desires to take us away from Christ. But the idea is that these people with the gold crowns have fought and clawed and persevered through all the junk that Satan has thrown at them. And at the end, they've won a gold crown. In most of the seven letters, it talks about one who conquers. And that's the idea here. They're dressed in white because they remain pure through all the struggles. And they have gold crowns because they've conquered, just like Jesus told them to do. Like I said, though, these are not just things that are with God, but in contrast, there are there's very much an idea of what is not with God here. These all display attributes of God, but there's not people that are not dressed in white there. There's, there's not people who have given in to impure, to, that have let impurities run their lives. Um, when I was in high school, uh, this was in the mid to late 90s, um, I lived in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a chief fan. I have a chief fan on, chief shirt on under this. Um, but I grew up in Kansas City, and my two best friends were kids named Ryan, Ryan and Wes. Um, so Ryan and Wes, we hung out all the time, uh, and a lot of times we were bored because, surprise, no one wanted to date us. Um, so we uh, we just there are a lot of times where Wes would just say, "Hey, let's drive to Wisconsin," and I'd say, "All right, let's drive to Wisconsin." So we'd get in the car, we'd drive like a two hours down the road, and be like, "This is stupid." Wisconsin's like 14 hours away, but that's how bored we were. One weekend, we said, you know what, let's drive to Lincoln, Nebraska. And Lincoln, Nebraska is about three hours north and a little bit west of Kansas City. It's where the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers play. And so we said, fine. So Wes and Ryan and I got in in Wes's car and we drove to Lincoln, Nebraska. And we were 16 or 17-year-old kids, really stupid. Um, But we were just, we said, you know what, let's just try to find a college party. So we drove around Lincoln. Didn't know Lincoln. I'd never been to Lincoln in my life. And so we drove around, tried to find a neighborhood where college kids would live, and finally found one, and then found a house where, like, the front doors were open, and it was loud, and there was music playing in their cars outside, and Wes and Ryan, Ryan and I were like, this is it. Like, we're 16, 17, but, like, we're going to hang out with college kids. And so we got in there, and we went in, and like I said, this is the mid-90s, and I don't know how much you know about college football, but in the mid, Dharma's gone, but in the mid to late 90s, Nebraska was... One of the best teams of all time. And even people that hate Nebraska would have to admit 
that 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, Nebraska teams were the, some of the greatest teams of all time. And so Wes and Ryan and I walk into this party, and 20 or 30 feet away across the counter, there's this guy who is probably 6'5", 320. He obviously played offensive line for the University of Nebraska. Like, he was just like, he wasn't like a, slo- a slovenly 320. He was 320, like, offensive line, like one of the strongest guys in the room. And he looked at us, and as soon as we stepped in, he glared daggers at us. And Wes, Wes was the first one to notice, and he turned to us, and he said, guys, like, whoever that guy is, he doesn't want us to be here. And Wes and Ryan and I looked, and we said, yeah, if we're too much longer, that guy will, I mean, he's 320 pounds, but he's still faster than all of us are because he plays football. But he just says, like, he would have destroyed us if we'd sit at that party any longer. It was clear we were not accepted. It was clear we should not be there. And so when John is shown by Jesus, these people who are dressed in white with gold crowns, it's clear that people who have given in to impurities and given their lives over to impurities and turned and let sin run rampant in their lives, it's clear that those people are not allowed. Those people are not and will, are not and will not be in the throne room with God. They will not be dressed in white. They will not have gold crowns. They will not be allowed around the throne because God cannot be around sin. Psalm 5.4 says that exactly. God cannot be around evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes, God, are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. The people who are here with God are the people of Christ who have said, Man, there are so many things that try to draw me off track. There's so many things I want to do. There's so many things my spirit tells me I should do, but I'm sticking with it. I choose to be pure. I choose to persevere and get that crown. The seven lampstands appear all the way back, and appear in the first couple chapters of, of Revelation. And I think Mike talked about it a little bit, but ultimately the seven lampstands are, are, are what are called the seven spirits of God. It's the Holy Spirit and seven different, seven different attributes of his. Not seven different spirits, seven different, different attributes of, who God, of the Holy Spirit is. And so Isaiah 11, these are just a listing of those seven. So there shall come forth the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the fruit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, number one, and understanding, number two, the spirit of counsel, number three, and might, number four, the spirit of knowledge, number five, and the spirit of the Lord, number six, and number seven, his delight shall be in the spirit of the Lord. So when you see seven lampstands in Revelation, it's talking about these seven personality traits, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So in Revelation 4, that's what it's talking about. The seven lampstands are just the Spirit coming up. But let me point something out else out here. Um, this shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, so David is the stump. And the shoot that comes out of that is Jesus. So even when Isaiah is talking about Jesus, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, is talking about the Spirit. And it's an incredible thing that in Revelation 4, Jesus speaks. That's his voice. The Spirit shows up in, in, in those seven lampstands. And the person on the throne is God. And like we hear of the Trinity and you've heard and you've, you've heard sermons on the Trinity and read stuff on the Trinity. And that's fine. But it is amazing how little the Trinity shows up together in Scripture. That's not to, that's, that's not to say I'm, that's not like, that's not to say I'm saying the Trinity doesn't exist because I'm clearly a Trinitarian. But, like, when they all show up together in Scripture, it just doesn't happen that much. Jesus actually said in John 17, right before he left the earth, he says, I have to go. I have to get out of here so the Holy Spirit can come. If you want the counselor to come, Jesus says, I have to leave this place. 
And so when these three elements, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit show up together, it's a big deal. They're here together in Revelation 4. It's such a big deal. They show up in Mary's conception of Jesus in Luke 135. If I can find it. In Luke 135, um, Luke Mark, right? So the angel answered Mary. Mary said, how will this be? How can I, how can I conceive since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will call, be called holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High, God, will overshadow you. And the child within you is called the Son of God. It's such a huge, like this is obviously the conception of Jesus. is not some small thing. But for all three of these things, all three of these persons that show up together, it shows you it's a huge deal. It shows up again in Matthew and other places where Jesus is baptized. But specifically Matthew 13 and following. So Jesus was baptized and immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of the God descends like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven, God, and saying, This is my Son, Jesus. There are very few times the Trinity shows up in Scripture because there's so much power and might together that it just it's honestly like the room isn't big enough for the three of them, to use a really stupid cliché. But in Revelation, Revelation 4, all these three guys are showing up, which just as the conception of Jesus is important, just as the baptism of Jesus is important, not even important, those things are essential. It's so important here that these three show up because it's just, there's so much power that's happening. There's so much, there's so much intensity that's happening in this room, but it's so important that they're showing up together. It says like crystal that sea is, and this has nothing to do with it, it's just a good representation of it, I thought. Um, the sea of crystal, some people think it's just the idea of it reflects what's above them. So take the lights and the rainbows and the thunder and the lightning and the elders and their crowns and all these things, and the sea just reflecting, and it, it doubles it, making it that much more beautiful. This is another picture I found of it. It has a sea, but it's not in color, obviously, so that takes a lot of it away. But this is the idea, that the sea is here, it's reflecting what's above it, and just glorifying and further and further showing how important and beautiful these things are. And it leads us to the beast. We haven't talked about the beast yet. This is just a one person's representation. By the way, uh, you can purchase this print for $55. Not from me. Um, but if you're looking for gifts for your kids or grandkids and you want to hang it above their door or above their bed and terrify them for the rest of their lives, um, $55. I can set you up with the internet page. Um, does not include counseling, please, or the inevitable counseling that you, your children have to have. This image is not from Revelation 4. Instead, this image is from Ezekiel 1 through 5, which is a prelude to Revelation 4. Ezekiel 1 through 5, or 1, 5 through 11, sorry, says, And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them looked straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on their left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. 
such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Now again, this is Ezekiel 1. Revelation also says that these beasts are covered with eyes, which is the idea that God is all-seeing, all-knowing, you can't have anything from God. As for who these four creatures are, there's just as many variations, if not more, as there were from the 24 elders. The church fathers, so in the early days of the church, they thought they were the four gospel writers, that the lion exemplified Matthew, that the ox was shown, showed up in Mark, that the man was in Luke, that the eagle was in John. The idea is that, the idea is that in Matthew, Jesus is shown as the king. That's even going back to the genealogy in Matthew 1, that Jesus is traced back to, to David, the king, that since David was king, Jesus was king. In Mark, the idea is that, that Jesus shows himself to be a laborer. Jesus shows himself to get tired, he, and, he gets, and, he, and he needs to rest, and he needs to get away from people, but he just he works so hard that he's like an ox. In Luke, the idea is that he is, yes, fully God, 100% fully God, 100% fully man. That's the tenet of the Christian faith. But that he shows this humanity even more in Luke and in John. The idea is, even going back to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that Jesus was this soaring high above majestic thing. Which is, again, like that's a fine idea, but even the church fathers didn't agree on what all these guys meant. Some of them thought that Luke was a lion, and so far and so forth. And, and Jesus is not a different person each of the gospel. That's something you can kind of get, it's a kind of dangerous road to go down. Jesus is not a different person. He's the same person, and he exemplifies all of these things. So I don't, I don't buy into that view. Another one, the Jewish tradition was camping in the desert. When, when the Israelites were, were wandering in the desert, before they got into the promised land, because they disobeyed God so much, the idea was that Dan was on the north, Jews on the east, Reuben was on the south, Ephraim was on the east, and the tabernacle was in the middle. I, I, don't, I don't exactly remember how these animals match up, but these animals surrounded the tabernacle where God was, where God met his people. That's Jewish tradition. I like the idea of the redeemed church. The redeemed church says that uh, there's kingly righteousness with hatred of evil and judicial equity. That's the line, kingly righteousness. It says the ox is an idea of laborious diligence in every duty. It says the man just exemplifies human sympathy and that the eagle is a contemplation of heavenly truth. The JFB commentary, which is a good one, says this. It says, as the high-soaring intelligence, the eagle, forms the contrasted complement to practical labor, the ox bound to the soil. So holy judicial vengeance against evil, the lion, springing suddenly and terribly on the doomed, forms a contrasted complement to human sympathy, the man. And the idea is that that is what the church somewhat looks like now, but in redemption, when the church is with Jesus, when we are united with Christ as the bride of Christ, the idea is that the redeemed church will be intelligent, but not ashamed to get down on its hands and knees. That it will hate evil. That it will fight hard to bring justice against evil, but not for the sake of giving up on people who struggle with sin. Like, that's what the redeemed church would look like. And I, I like that idea. And this image, this is just another image of the... Of the of the things. And again, this doesn't match up with Isaiah, but their worship is the same. In Isaiah 6 1, Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which is a class of angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And it's so easy, once again, for us to see those and be like, 
Man, those are cool. Like, if those were action figures, I'd buy those. Not, not, not even for my kids. I'd buy those for myself, and I'd just, like, clash them together and things like that. But, like, those are, those are cool. Like, there are so many cool things in Revelation 4. But, again, look at what these beasts say. That's, that, they say the first part, and so the elders say the second part. They say, holy, holy, holy. And I don't know if these guys know how cool they look, these beasts, but ultimately it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to us. It matters. The only thing that matters is their worship of God. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is there and is to come. And a few verses after that, the elders say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There are two times. It's called the, I just look at my notes, it's called the Trisagion. And it really is just simply saying there's two, there's two times in Scripture where holy, holy, holy shows up back to back to back. Two times. One's in Isaiah 6. We just read that verse. One's here in Revelation 4. And the idea is that God is holy. Like, he's called that throughout Scripture. And what God does is holy. And he, he makes men holy. And he meets people in the holy of holies. But there's twice in Scripture where that word shows up three times. And the idea that the, that the biblical writers were getting at is, yeah, God is holy. And God meets, the, he, he met his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the holy of holies. But holy, 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 that's, that's the holiest thing you can think of. And that's really stupid wording, but like that's, there's nothing you can think of that's higher than that. And holy exemplifies who God is, God is anyway. But calling him it three times is saying that everything he is exemplifies holiness. There's nothing about him. Every single act he does, every single personality trait he has, everything points to how holy God is. And these beasts recognize it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They recognize his character is holy, and they recognize his eternality. He was in the past. He is in the future. He is to come. He is in the present, and he is to come in the future. The Lord is holy, and he is eternal, and these beasts worship him because of it. In verse 11, these elders, they recognize his deeds. They recognize that he is creative. They recognize he is glorious. They recognize he is majestic. They recognize that by his will alone, all of creation, not just humanity, not just the world, all of creation, the galaxies and the universes and the far reaches of space that we will never be able to send spacecrafts to, all of them, by God's will, he, they exist and they were created. And so I want us to recognize not just who God is, even though that's important, but I want us to recognize and see and even hopefully resemble what these guys worship is. Whoever these elders are, these are not just some random schmoes off the street. They might go all the way back to the very first priest. They might go all the way back to the 12 tribes and the 12, 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, which are kind of big deals there. They might, whoever they are, these 24 guys, they give up everything they have and they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. These crowns are things, again, where they have fought and they have clawed and they have prevailed and they have gone through the muck and the mire and thrown off all the temptations and the trials of Satan and they've won these crowns and they say, Jesus, it's yours. God, you can have it. Because everything I am is nothing compared to who you are. And everything I want to give you is 
It's all that I can give you. And so they cast their crowns before the feet of Jesus and say, you are worthy. Holy are you. Worthy of all of our praise. If not for God's grace, salvation, and goodness, they could not have had victory over sin and death. So, how what, how awesome would it be for us to cast our crowns before Jesus? And secondly, again, the crazy thing is that this is in the future, but verse 8 says that day and night they never cease. John just caught up and he, he kind of came in the middle of a worship session. And we don't know when it started, but the but the verbiage here and the grammar here is that while they are never ceasing in their worship, that thing's continuing to this day. So while this is happening 2,000 years ago, whenever John is caught up to that vision, and now 2,000 years later, that's still happening. And the beasts are saying, holy, holy, holy. And the elders are saying, worthy are you, God. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy are you. And back and forth and back and forth, they're saying these things. And worship of God never ceases. And they're casting their crowns before him and worshiping him because of who he is and how great he is. And we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity while we're not there yet. And it's probably, it's not going to be me around the 21st. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. All right. But like we have the opportunity to worship God for who he is, give everything to him and say, I never want to get to a point where worship of you is not a primary thing in my life. One last quote. And I don't remember again where I found this either. So maybe I said it. Worship is not the invention of nice things to say about God. And I love that there's new worship songs coming out. Like, it's a tremendous thing. I was listening to a new Christmas album yesterday, and it was, like, just really impactful to me. But worship is not the invention of nice things to say about God. Like, yeah, we're making up new rhymes and kind of the same new ways to say things, whatever. But God is already so good. And worship is a recognition of what he already is, what he's already done and promised, and how worthy he is of our praise. We don't need to sit there and think of things to say about God. We just could say, holy, holy, holy. Are you, God, worthy of our praise? Everything we give, everything we have, everything we are, we give to you because you are worthy of it. I don't know what your worship looks like. I will say this, that my worship often is not good. And often, like, 90 to 95% of the time, I'll just put that number out there. Like, I'm pretty good, like, we're singing songs, and I'm okay, and I'm up here talking to you guys. But ultimately, my worship is not great. But when we look at Revelation 4... And we look at all the things that God is through all those things that are there. When we look at all the things that, that these people are saying, all the things that they're casting before God, all these guys can do and think about is to worship. And again, I don't know what it looks like for you, but man, I feel so impacted by Revelation 4 and saying, man, God, you are greater than I think you are. I feel like a little like, I feel like, a little, a little like Job and saying, God, I, there's struggles in my life. God, I, I, there's been times I've been really upset with you. I don't understand how things are. I don't know why this happened. I don't know what. I don't know why this person left me, or why this person had to die, or why this person had to get injured, or all these things. I don't know why I got sick. Whatever. I don't know how all those things happen. I don't know why all those things happen. When I look at Revelation four, just like Job did, and I think even like John did when he was caught up to this heaven, it makes me think, man, God, yes, these things happen, and they suck. But you are so much greater, so so much more powerful and grander and wiser and bigger and better than I am. That I'm still dealing with these things. And God, you deal with me in these things. But ultimately, these things pale in existence to how great you are.
I hope my worship can be more like that. And I'll pray that you guys do.